Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special and fascinating guest. His name is David McRaney, and he is a science journalist and author. Uh, I first came to know David's work through his blog and book, You Are Not So Smart, which was a fun review of all of the cognitive foibles and behavioral errors we all make. But it turns out that David was looking at how people change their minds, how you persuade people. And he thought the answer was found in all of these cognitive errors. And if you could only alert people to the mistakes they were making, whether it be fact checks or just showing them their biases uh, and the heuristics they use and the rules of thumb they use that were wrong, hey, they would come around and, and see the light. And as it turns out, that approach is all wrong. And his mea culpa is essentially this book, How Minds Change. It turns out that persuading people about their fundamental beliefs involves a very, very specific set of steps, starting with they have to want to change. They have to be willing to change, which only occurs when people come to the realization that they believe something for perhaps reasons that aren't very good. And it's a process. It's an exploration. It's fascinating the people he's met with and discussed, whether it's deep canvassing or street epistemology or some of the other methodologies that are used to persuade people that some of their really controversial political beliefs are wrong. He's met with various people from all, everything from flat earthers to anti-vaxxers to the folks who have left the Westboro Baptist Church, a pretty notorious and controversial uh, institution. I found this conversation really to be tremendous and fascinating, and I think you will also, with no further ado, my interview with David McRaney. Well, I've been a fan of, of your work, and I thought when this book came out, it was a great opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with you. Before we get to the book, let's talk a little bit about your background. You, you started as a reporter covering everything from Hurricane Katrina test rockets for NASA, halfway home for homeless people with HIV. Yeah. What led you to becoming focused on behavior and psychology? Well, I thought that's what I was going to do for a living. I was I went to school, to university to study uh, psychology. I thought I'd be a therapist. I uh, 
got that degree. But then as I was doing that, uh, there was a sign up on campus that said opinionated in big Helvetica font. And I was like, yeah, I am. That would be, that seems neat. What is that? And they said, you know, come down to the offices of the student newspaper. I went down there and said, how does this work? They said, uh, just email us stuff. You have a, an opinions piece you want to do? I'm like, hmm. And I, I wrote a really like a uh, sophomore thing about Starbucks and on campus. Cause it was just about to come into campus. And I wrote that and wrote a couple other things. And then there was a study that had just recently come out and who knows if it's replicated or stood the test of time, but it was, uh, when your favorite sports team loses, uh, men's sperm counts uh, go down. And I thought uh, our team at our school had uh, lost every single game that year so far. What does and that I, mean for the future progeny of <laughs> alumni? That's and frightening. I, and I thought it would be a great headline that would be funny. And the headline I wrote was, uh, you know, evidence suggests the sperm counts reach record lows on campus. And uh, one of my professors laughed about it and asked the whole class if, if they had read it but they didn't know that I was in the class and I was like oh wait this could be fun so I switched to journalism and you know <laughs> went all the way through the student paper then went into print journalism and tv journalism but I once I'd reached a certain point in that world I wasn't able to write anymore I was doing editing and helping other people and I just really wanted to write something and it just so happened blogs were becoming very popular at that mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. uh my dad says and uh others that were like oh that's way later yeah. I'm thinking back to uh uh, Yahoo's GeoCities in the late 90s. <laughs> yeah, I played in that world, I too. I mean, I'm, I'm the OG when it comes to blogging. Yeah, I go way, you. way back. I just happened to be there when they blew up on the point of, like, they got book deals. And I started <laughs> I, a blog called You Are Not So Smart about all the cognitive biases and fallacies and heuristics that I really enjoyed. And I wrote a piece about brand loyalty that uh, went viral. And the rest is history. I was asked to write a book about it. And then I was like, okay. Oh, I will continue playing in this world. But I started the, I started the podcast to promote the second book because the first book did so well, they said, do another really quickly, and I did. You are less dumb now. Yeah, you are now less dumb, yes. You are now less and, dumb. And uh, I just so happened to start a, a podcast right when podcasts were becoming a thing. I sent an email to Mark Maron because he had the number one podcast. I said, how do you do this? And he actually sent me an email with a bullet point. Really? HT, like each with links to Amazon items. and No kidding. And he was very nice. And I, and I, I got all the stuff and started it up and... Uh, that has now become sort of the centerpiece because that's uh, I was there when it got going. My my pitch for this podcast was WTF meets Charlie Rose. And that's a good pitch. Nobody knew what WTF was, but <laughs> I mean they didn't know the acronym nor did they know the podcast because you know you have to be a little bit of a comedy junkie to to, yeah. to have found that in the early days. Right later on, it was ubiquitous. So sticking with journalism, when you were still writing, you seem to have covered some really unusual and interesting stories. Tell us about one of the more surprising things that you covered. I always wanted to do feature pieces. That was the world that I loved when I was in journalism school. And, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra has a cold electric Kool-Aid acid test. I just wanted to write features. Uh -huh. and I wanted to be there in person and, and like tell you, explore humanity from the inside out that way. And I, uh, the halfway home for uh, HIV positive uh, men, for homeless people in the deep South, that was a, a real turning point for me because there's a, uh, huh. I had to spend about three weeks on that story and I visited all the different people, went to all the different meetings. And the homelessness is very invisible in the Deep South. They often live uh, in the woods, you know, they live right. in the forest. The, and they, there's a lot of people in the Deep South don't think there is a homeless problem. And that was a really interesting way to break that story into uh, a, the public, you know, consciousness of, no, no, there's a problem here. It's just hidden from you in a very particular way. And a lot of people weren't even aware that there were organizations that uh, dealt with that. And that really, show me this is the world I want to be in this kind of stuff I want to do so I'm picking up a theme in both your writing columns and books which is there's a problem you don't know about it mm -hmm. it's hidden 
and here it is. Uh, that's the whole thing. Like hidden worlds are it for me. Like I grew up in a trailer in the woods in the deep south, and as an only child, I was always searching for the others. I didn't know how I was going to get there. And uh-huh. once I got had a hand was extended into this stage, that's all I want to do. Like I call them tiramisu moments because I remember uh, the what, first time you had tiramisu. I, I was. I went to a, it was when I was still in the working for a TV station. We had a little conference where people in my position went, and we went there, and we got tiramisu as a dessert. And I remember I took a bite of it, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is so damn good! What <laughs> what is this?" And everyone there was like, "Uh, it's tiramisu," and I was like, "Oh yeah, 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 tiramisu, love the stuff." And <laughs> and but I, that's it. That's what I'm pursuing now. I want more of those things I didn't know. I didn't know, you know. That's really quite interesting. So. I guess it's kind of natural that you evolve towards behavior and cognitive issues. I was going to ask you what led to it, but it seems like that's something you've been driving for your whole career. Yeah, it's a unity through humility. It's it's we're all absolutely stumbling and fumbling in the dark and pretending like we we know what we're up to. Even here in these fantastic, you know, Bloomberg offices like uh the thing I want to avoid is the sense that I've got it all figured out and there are massive domains in psychology and neuroscience and other social sciences that just start from that place and then investigate it. And I find that when I discover these things that we all share that should give us a pause, should cause us to feel humility, I feel like I'm in the right spot and I want to like dig deeper into those places and reveal them so we can all be on the same page that way. So blind spots, unknown unknowns, things that we are just clearly clueless about. And the biases that, when I started out, things like, confirmation bias wasn't you know there wasn't as just tip of the tongue as it is now and survivorship bias things like that so i noticed in this book nothing written about dunning kruger nothing about cialdini's persuasion is that a different approach to decision making and psychology like or because i always assume there would be a little bit of an overlap there I didn't want to retread anything. Uh, there, are, there's some foundational stuff that I do talk about in the book that I feel like you can never not talk about. Things. Some which goes back a century, mm-hmm. and like the introspection illusion has to always be uh, talked about. We don't know the antecedents to our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, but we are very good at creating narratives to explain ourselves to ourselves. And if you always have to mention that in any book about this topic, as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned, and so there's a little bit of that, but like. Dunning Kruger and uh, all the other big heavy hitters. I, I definitely did not want to write How to Win Friends and Influence People Part Two <laughs> because uh, I wanted to come from a very different perspective on uh, all of this. And I didn't want it to be a book specifically about persuasion because I don't need to start talking about actual persuasion techniques till about page 200. Like I show you people who are doing things that could be labeled as persuasion techniques, but I don't get into the like the science of it till later. Oddly, you mentioned uh, Dunning Kruger. I, I just recently uh, spent some time with old Dunning, uh, Professor David Dunning. He, um, a former guest on the show. Oh, I don't wow. think he, he's that old. I think he's. Uh, <laughs> I say old in, in the uh, chummy Apache on the back kind of way. He, uh, I keep asking him to come back on the show, but he's working on a new project and he's a new he, book on Dunning Kruger. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, a lot of people. There's been all these people who want to knock it down, and and he's there like, have been attempts, but none have really yeah, landed so, a blow. So we helped him out, or, or he helped us out. Uh, my good friend Joe Hansen has a YouTube channel and uh, who does explores different science stuff. It's called Be Smart. And we were talking about that recently. There was a story about someone who uh, the pilot, you know, went unconscious and they've landed the airplane, but they got help from the tower. Uh-huh. And we were talking about that. And I was like, I feel like I could land an airplane based off all my video game experience. And, and Joe said he thought he could, too. And I said, this has got to be done in Kruger. Right. And I said, it would be cool if you did a video where you 
got into like one of those a simulator, com- a commercial a fly- real simulator, a commercial not, flight simulator. Yeah. And they just said, yeah, try, go ahead, land, knock yourself out. And so uh, he got a, I, I got him, I got him in touch with Dunning, and Dunning was like, I can't wait to to be part of this project. So he both interviews back and forth with Dunning before and after. And of course he gets in the simulator and they hand him the controls and they say, okay, land it. And of course he crashed and he crashed it three times. Right. <laughs> that That's impressive. You know, even David Dunning tells a wonderful story about they never expected the research paper, uh, Dunning Kruger on metacognition to explode. And he goes, I never thought about trademarking it. He goes, go on, go on Amazon. You'll see Dunning Kruger University. Yeah. Shirts, keychains, all sorts of stuff. He goes, there's a million dollars there. I just had no experience in that. And I got a little Dunning Kruger. It's a little Dunning Kruger for David Dunning. Did not, did not think about the uh, commercial side of it. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So there's a quote I want to share because it sets up everything. Uh, and I'm, I'm sort of cheating. It's from towards the end of the book. We do this because we are social primates who gather information in a biased manner for the purpose of arguing for our individual perspectives in a pooled information environment within a group that deliberates on shared plans of actions towards a collective goal. Yeah. Kind of sums up everything we do in, in a it paragraph. It sure does. That was, a lot of work, went, years of work went in that little, par- little One paragraph. One paragraph. That, a lot of that comes from something that's called the interactionist model. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's sort of a peanut butter and chocolate of comeuppance in this book because I've spent years talking to people through You Are Not So Smart, and I would argue that we're flawed and irrational, right? And that was a, there was a big pop psychology movement for that mm-hmm. uh, about a decade ago. Uh, or, things like Predictably Irrational and right. uh, even the work of uh, Kahneman Tversky, like a lot of the like interpretation of that was like, oh, look how dumb we are, right? And look how easily fooled we are, look how bad we are with probabilities. And one of the incepting moments of this book was I did a lecture and someone came up to me afterward 
her father was had slipped into a conspiracy theory and she asked what do i do about that and i told her uh nothing it was like <laughs> and but i i felt gross saying it i felt like i was locking my keys in my car i felt like I think I know enough to tell you that, but I know I don't. And also, I don't want to be that that pessimistic and cynical. And at the same time, the attitudes and norms around same-sex marriage in the United States had flipped like very rapidly. Are we going to go into that right. also? So those two things together, I was like, I would, I want to understand this better. So I invited on my podcast Hugo Mercier, and he teamed up with Dan Sperber, and they created something called the Interactionist Model, which is a model that I only want to talk to them about, you know, changing minds, arguing. And it opened up this whole world. And through them, I also met with Tom Stafford. And there's the interactionist uh-huh. model, and there's the truth win scenario. And those are sort of the peanut butter and chocolate of my comeuppance. Because instead of looking at people as being flawed and irrational, I now see it's just as biased and lazy, which is different. And what you're just talking about with that paragraph is about the interactionist model, which is uh, a, a lot of the research that went into all those books from about a decade ago they were pulling from studies that were done on individuals in isolation. And then when you pull all of their conclusions together and you treat people as a group of people based off that research, we do look kind of flawed, right? We do look very irrational, but if you take that exact same research and you allow people to deliberate in groups, you get much different reactions, much different responses. And that's been furthered by the work of Tom Stafford. He's been taking some of the old stuff from those old uh, studies and putting them to groups and even creating um, social media simulacrums that work like Twitter and Facebook and stuff, but have a totally different context, allows people to deliberate and argue in different ways. And you get much different results. You get better results. We're much A good example of that is like, uh, you take something from the cognitive reflection task or something like, a, I'll make it real simple so we don't have to like do any weird math in our heads. Like you're running a race and you pass the person in second place, what place are you in? And you know, the intuitive answer, you start trying to work it out in your head, but the, the the answer one if you like lean back is well I, I replace second place I'm in second place, but if you ask people individually you get a pretty high response <laughs> rate where place. they get the wrong answer. Right. But if you take that exact same question and you pose it to a group of people and I do this in lectures now and you say um, okay I'm, I'm going to ask this question keep the answer to yourself. Now does anyone have the right answer? You know you have the right answer. Raise your hand. Somebody raises their hand. I say okay what's the answer? They give you the answer. Then you say explain your reasoning and then they explain the reasoning. When they give their answer, there'll be a grumble in the crowd. Right. When they explain the reasoning behind it, the crowd goes, oh, okay. Now, if you took everyone's individual answer and pulled it together, you'd be like, wow, 80% of this group got the wrong answer. Right. But if you allow that deliberation moment to take place, where mm-hmm. I explain my reasoning to you, you get a group of people who would go from 80% incorrect to 100% correct. And we're really set up for that. And the interactionist model is all about this. It's the work of Hugo Mercy and Dan Sperber. They have a great book about this called The Enigma of Reason. It's a, it's not a light read. It's really sort of, you know, academic, but it's great because they found looking through the old research and their own new research that we have two cognitive systems, one for producing arguments, one for evaluating arguments. And the one that produces arguments does it very lazily and very, in a very biased manner. You can think of it like, uh, you ask, where do you want to go eat? And, you know, have a three or four people after a movie, like hanging out in the lobby. They're like, I want to go, I want to go here. I want to go here. I want to go here. And, uh, they have biased reasons for that. One person's the woman says, "Hey, let's go get sushi." And the somebody's like, "Where over here? No, no, my ex works there." Or, or I someone will say, "I had sushi yesterday," or "I don't like sushi." That you can't predict what are going to be the counter arguments, so you present your most biased and lazy argument up front, and uh-huh. you let the the deliberation take place in the pooled uh, evaluation process. You offload the cognitive labor to that. We're all familiar with doing that. Everyone has their ideas. You trade back and forth, and we decide on the group 
goal and the plan, which is what this evolved to do. But we are also very familiar with the way that plays out on the internet, which is um, my good friend Alex. Which is removed and you don't get the same That's sort right. of social cues coming back Right, so you, you get like, let's say, my good friend Alistair Kroll, uh, who runs conferences, he put it to me like this. He's like, yeah, on the internet, when you say, uh, I want gr- a grilled cheese sandwich, uh, it's not an argument for for who wants grilled cheese sandwiches. Should we get grilled cheese sandwiches? Does anyone else agree with me? On the internet, on most of the platforms we use today, it's saying, I want grilled cheese sandwiches. Who wants to go with me to the grilled cheese sandwich room? And so everyone who agrees with that position and is already like, yeah, that's what I want too, they get pulled off into a community of people who want this. And then a whole new set of psychological mechanisms go into play, which is all about being a social primate and being a community. So there's no iteration, there's no debate, there's no consensus Mm -hmm. forming as to what the best solution to that problem is. You just have some salient issue and people form a, right. a tribe and, around it. And what it. looks like madness or what looks like some sort of nefarious thing going down, one of the things that the internet gives us is the ability to group up very quickly. Mm-hmm. And we are social primates. If we go into a group, we start being worried about motivations like, I want to be a good member of my group. I want to be, a, to be considered a trustworthy member of my group and so on. And you get a lot of the weird stuff we see today that, that falls into the domain of being polarized or being in a system where everyone is... If you have a group of people who agree with you on your current position, it's very difficult to argue out of it because I can always fall back to them for backup. And so that's some of the stuff that goes into that paragraph. And it gets more complicated from there. But yeah, it was very illuminating to me. And and a a lot of the new material in this book uh, relates back to it. Not that the earlier books were wrong or incorrect in any way, but I kind of took this as a little bit of a mea culpa in terms of, hey, I was focusing on one area but really we need to focus on a broader area in terms of not just why we make these cognitive errors, but how you can change somebody's mind who's trapped in some heuristic or other cognitive problem mm-hmm. that is leading them the wrong way. You're totally right. I, I did not intend for this to be like some sort of marketing phrase or trick, but it's the truth. I, in writing a book about how minds change, I changed my mind on a lot of stuff that I was like depending on for like my like career. And I'm happy to do that. It feels really great to be on the other side of some of these things and see it more clearly and more, you know, more dimensionality to it. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the blog that led to the book oh, yeah. that really put you on the map. You are not so smart. Um, I love the title of this. Why you have too many friends on Facebook, <laughs> why your memory is mostly fiction, and 46 other ways you're deluding yourself. Yeah. Was there, were there 46 chapters? Or was that just a random? No, no, it was, it was exactly how many uh, things are explored in the book, yeah. Uh-huh. That, that's great. So we already discussed what led you to this area of research. Why did you decide to go from blogging, which is easy in short form, to writing a book, which anyone who has done it will tell you it can be a bit of a slog? It was, here's how that happened. I was just blogging away back in the early days. I maybe had a thousand people reading my stuff. And that was back way before Medium and Twitter and any other way to get your stuff out there. Right. And when, I- When did you launch You Are Not So Smart as a blog? like 2008, 2007, okay. in there. I uh, got into an argument with two of my friends about what was better, the PlayStation 3 or the Xbox 360. Uh-huh. We got so mad at each other that it was like, I might not be able to like hang out with them. Really? And- this, I, this isn't a political Trump versus yeah, well, Biden debate. This is, yeah, but, but it's, it's just as tribal. But it is. You it's, know, that, it's the same and, psychology. Right. And I I couldn't get over, like, why would I get mad about this? Like, it's just a box of wires. And <laughs> uh, I like that. And I, since I had a background in psychology, uh, I went and I had access to the university library. I, w- I just was like, well, there's got to be some material about this. Right. 
and I found a bunch of material on brand loyalty and identification and, right. and group identity, and I wrote a, a little blog about it, but I framed it as Apple versus PC. That would make those commercials were out right then. Right. And at the time, the blog Gizmodo had stolen the iPhone prototype. I recall that, yeah. And then like Steve Jobs sent an email. They didn't steal it, they found it in a bar. Yes, they found, it, they found it in a bar. And uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs sent them an email that says, give me back my iPhone. And they just they just went for the hits and they got super viral. And I just assumed they had like a Google alert for stuff written about Apple stuff. And I got an email that said, can we reblog your blog post on this? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I went from 1,000 to 250,000 people. Wow. And I was like, oh, I should write a bunch of stuff on and so that week i just started going like things in that sort of area and i wrote a lot more things about like uh, learned helplessness and other issues mm-hmm. and i had an audience and it and it was maybe four months later an agent reached out who had worked on um freakonomics and said i think this could be a book and she's still my age i actually met with her uh today if i'm in town i want to always try to meet with her because she changed my life air malone borba amazing human being and uh we turned it into a book, and about half of it was already in blog form. I wrote the rest of it for the book, and that book just really took off. Like it's still even today, it's like in nineteen different languages. It's some, wow. every once in a while it'll be number one in a different country. It was recently number one in Vietnam. Well, that's how I went from blog to book world. But then they were like, "Hey, could you write another book?" And I said, "I sure can." And uh, I wanted to promote it, and at that time, podcasting had just become a thing. I was listening to Radio Lab uh-huh. and This American Life. And uh, I was like you, I was listening to WTF and I said, I can't, I want to do something like that. And I just started up the a podcast to promote it. And it just turned out that the podcast was really where I could actually explore this stuff. And, and I jumped into it. So, so there is a, a quote, I think this might be from the back of the book. So I don't know if this is your words or a blurb I'm stealing, but Quote, there is a growing body of work coming out of psychology and cognitive science that says you have no clue why you act the way you do, choose the things you choose, or think the thoughts you think. <laughs> Explain. Yes. That's called the introspection illusion, and it's been uh, a real centerpiece of my work for a long time. We don't have access to the antecedents of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, uh, but we do have thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that require some kind of explanation. And we are very good at coming up with these uh, post hoc, ad hoc rationalizations and justifications for what we're doing. And those eventually become a narrative that we live by. It becomes sort of the character we portray. And we end up being an unreliable narrator in the story of our own lives. And so the two, it's like a, a one-two punch of you're unaware of how unaware you are. And that leads you to being the unreliable narrator in the story of your life. And that's fine like this is something that is adaptive in most situations but there's when we get into some complex stuff like you know politics running a business designing an airplane you should know about some of these things because they'll get you into some trouble that we never got into you know a hundred thousand years ago so a lot of this is evolutionary baggage that we carry forward but you touched on two of my favorite biases one is the narrative fallacy that we create these stories uh, to explain what we're doing as well as Hindsight bias, where after something happens, of course we knew that was going to happen. We saw it coming. Uh, Tell (laughs) us about those two biases. Well, narrative fallacy, I love this. My good friend, Will Storr, who writes... um, It's a question I have for you. I love Will. Enemies of science. I love Will so much. And he has a book not too long ago that he came up with, uh, The the Science of Storytelling. And... uh, I love that domain. You know, all mo- the whole hero's journey, the the, uh, sure. the Campbell, Joseph Campbell, right? The science side of that is uh, most storytelling takes place exactly along the same lines as retrospection. So you retrospection looking back, prospection looking forward. 
we tend to look back on our own lives as you know we're the hero we're the protagonist and whatever we're looking at specifically it's like okay we started out in this space and then we went on a exploratory journey and then we eventually came back yeah eventually we came back around with that new knowledge and applied it changed person yeah yeah you know we have the the synthesis and the antithesis the all those things are how we kind of see ourselves it's how we make sense of our past because we couldn't remember everything that would be horrible we had so we edit it to be useful in that way and that's why when you're watching a movie or reading a book and it doesn't seem to be working for you it's because it's not really playing nice with that retrospective system mm-hmm. but it's also how our personal narratives seem to be very nice and tidy in that way and uh, although they never are if you've ever uh, told a, a story about something with someone who was also there and they're like it what didn't you, happen that my, way my wife, <laughs> my wife says that all the time I don't know what what experience he had, but I was there, and none of that happened. That's right. And you, uh, if without people to check you, what does that say? It says that a whole lot of what you believe is the story of your life is one of those things. That if you had a perfect diary of it, or a recording of it, or someone who was there who could challenge you, it wasn't exactly the way you think it was. Who was the professor after? Was it nine eleven or some big event? Had everybody write down their notes as to what they saw, what they felt, what they were experiencing. And then I guess these were freshmen, and then by the time they become seniors, they circle back and ask them. Now it's three years later, and not only do they misremember it, but when shown their own notes, they disagree with themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's been repeated a few times. I'll, I'll talk about it in how minds change. Robert Burton did this experiment after the Challenger incident. That was his, that was the big one, right? With the 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 one that in that study was uh, when it signal went above the noise, and yeah, that's the most amazing part of it. You. You, they have you to write down whatever happened or what you thought happened. They also do it prospection wise. I think they've done, they've done it where you're, tell me what you think is going to happen, and you put it into a Manila envelope, and then the thing happens. You know whatever event takes place, and then you ask people what did you what did you predict was going to happen, and they tell you I predicted exactly what happened. You take it out of the Manila envelope, and it's not that, and they're like, right. oh come on, there's no way. This, but it, even though that's my handwriting, I never would have written that. And that's the weirdest thing in the in the Challenger study. Uh, when he showed people that their memory was absolutely not what they thought it was, their first reaction was to say, you're tricking me. Like, so, like this is, you wrote this. Like, somebody else wrote this. And that seems so similar to something called anosognosia. Yeah. And anosognosia is the denial of disorder. And you can have like a lesion or a brain injury that mm-hmm. cause some something is wrong in your body. But then on top of that, you have this other thing, which is denial of the thing that's wrong in your body. So I've seen cases where people have a, an arm that doesn't function properly, and they'll ask, like, well, why can't you lift your arm? Why can't you pick up this pencil? And they'll, and they'll say, oh, what are you doing? I can pick that up. Like, well, what's going on with this arm? I'm like, that's my mom's arm. She's playing a joke on me right now. It's and like the split brain patients yeah. where they don't understand what they're seeing right. and they come up with a... This uh, is the greatest example we've been discussing is if you, if you have someone who has a... Uh, they call it a split brain patient. You take the corpus callosum that connects the two uh, hemispheres. They, a corpus callosomy is often uh, performed when a person has a certain kind of, uh, they have seizures that they don't Epilepsy. want to cascade. Um, the, you'll end up with basically two brains. And you can use a divider so that one eye is going to one hemisphere, one eye is going to the other. You can show a person an image. Let's say you show them a, a terrible car wreck, mangled bodies, and they feel very sick. But the portion of the brain you're showing that to is not the portion that delivers language. So then you ask the person who is feeling sick, why you feel sick right now? What's going on? They say, oh, I ate something bad at lunch. We we will very quickly come up with a narrative or explanation for what we're experiencing 
And we do so believing that narrative, even if that narrative is way far away from what's actually taking place. So let's quickly run through some of our favorite cognitive biases. Oh boy, and, this is going to be tough. This is going to be tough. I hope I remember these. Let's go. Um, uh, well, we'll start with an easy one: confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. When people write about confirmation bias, they usually get it pretty wrong. Uh, here's the way I but like it. But it confirms what they were expecting. Right? <laughs> That's so, a great way to put it. Right? There's a, the least sexy term in uh, psychology is the makes sense stopping rule. You think they come up with a better phrase. And that, that just means when I go looking for an explanation of something, when, when it finally when it makes sense, I'll stop looking for more information. Right. Confirmation bias is what happens. Uh, here's the way I'd prefer to frame it. Let's say you're in a tent in the woods. You hear a weird sound. And... Uh, you think, oh, that might be a bear. I should go look. So you, what you have is a negative affect in your body. You have an anxiety. You go out looking for confirmation that that anxiety is just or reasonable because there's a social aspect to it at all times because we can't escape our social selves. And so you go looking and you, maybe you don't find it. You know, maybe you don't find the evidence that points in that direction. Eventually you, you modify your behavior based off what you see with your flashlight. If you do that online though or an environment that's an information rich environment you right. have some sort of anxiety and you're looking for justification that that anxiety is uh is reasonable you'll find it you'll Pretty find something too. right and that'll confirm that you that your search was was good and justified and reasonable to other human beings so confirmation bias very simply is just uh something happens that doesn't make sense you want to disambiguate it it's uncertain you want to reach some level of certainty so you look for information that based off your hunch your hypothesis and then when you find information that seems to like confirm your hunch, you stop looking as if you like did solve something. Solve the problem. Yeah, as if you solved it. Yeah. Why don't we as a species look for disconfirming information just to validate? In most situations, it's not adaptive. Like confirmation bias is actually the right move in most situations. Like if you're looking for your keys, you're not you know, find your keys, you're done. Yeah, you don't go looking for your keys on Mars. You go looking for them <laughs> in your kitchen, right? And like it's the faster solution. And most of our most of these biases go back to. The adaptive thing is the thing that costs the least calories and mm -hmm. and gets you to this solution as quickly as possible so you can go back to trying to find food and not getting eaten. And in this case, most of the time, most of the time, confirmation bias serves as well. It's in those instances where it really doesn't serve as well that we end up with things like, you know, climate change. Or, or what have you. <laughs> uh, what about ego depletion? Oh, man. Ego depletion is one of those things that, boy, the, the, it goes back and forth. Uh, uh, the original scientists are still, like, hardcore into it. I love it. Uh whether or not ego depletion is properly uh, like defined or categorized, the phenomenon does exist. The actual mechanisms of it aren't well understood, but uh, when you have been faced with a lot of cognitive tasks, mm -hmm. uh, you start to have a hard time completing cogn more cognitive tasks in, in general. Uh, um, as well as issues that require willpower and discipline. That's right. So the more you the more you use willpower, the less willpower you have to use. It's now, finite, not not. Unending. And this is a not well understood. A lot of the like, here's why this is happening, like have failed to replicate. So we have this phenomenon, but we still don't quite understand what is the mechanism underlying it. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. 
With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, let me do one last one. The Benjamin Franklin Effect. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Franklin Effect goes back to, you know, a lot of my new book is, is, is in this domain of justification and rationalization. Um, Benjamin Franklin had someone who was opposing him uh, at every turn. I call him a hater in the in the previous book back when that was a, a, a term. Yeah, and uh, he just had this a political opponent that he uh, he knew was going to cause him real problems for the next thing he was going up for. And uh, he also knew that this guy um, had a really nice book collection, and everybody also knew that Benjamin Franklin had a nice book collection. And so he sent them a, a letter that said, "There's a book that I've always wanted to read, but I can never find. I hear you've got a copy of it." No. The who knows? It seems from reading the literature that Benjamin Franklin totally had this book, and uh, but the guy gave him the book as a favor. He was like very honored that Benjamin Franklin would ask for it. Uh, I like to think that Benjamin Franklin just like put it on a shelf and then waited no, right. wait, waited a month and then took it back to him. Right. Um, but he said, "Thank you. I'm forever in your debt. No, you're the best." And uh, from that point forward, that guy never said another negative thing about Benjamin Franklin. So what that comes down to is, I just observed my own behavior. I did something that produced cognitive dissonance. I have a negative attitude toward Benjamin Franklin, but I did something that a person with a positive attitude would do. Mm-hmm. So I must either think a strange thing about who I am and what I'm doing, or I could just take the easy route out and go, I like Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> and that's that, they call that the Benjamin Franklin effect. I find that really just fascinating. There are two phrases that I, I made a note of in one of the books that I have to ask about. Extinction burst and I have to ask, what is wrong with catharsis? What is wrong with catharsis? Extinction burst is a real thing that I love. Uh, I see that everywhere. I see, I see that all in, in society right now in many different ways. Uh, extinction burst is uh, when you have a behavior that has been enforced many, many times and you, uh, it's, your body even expects that you're going to perform this behavior and you start doing something like, say, dieting or you're trying to quit right. smoking or you're trying to do, you're trying just to extinguish the behavior. Right at the moment before it fully extinguishes, you will have a little hissy fit. You'll have a, um, as they say back home, um, you'll have a toddler outburst sort of thing where your all of your systems, cognitive systems, are saying, "Why don't we really, really try to do that thing again? Because we're about to lose it." Right. And the uh, they call this an extinction burst. It's that moment of like if you're watching it on a slope, it's sloping down, 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 and there's a huge spike. 
And you, that could either be the moment you go back to smoking or, or, right. or the eating, relapse or the, or the moment the, you finish. Or it could be the death rattle. It depends on how you how you uh, deal with your extinction. Uh, I, I thought that was fascinating. And then catharsis comes up. Why is the concept of that cathartic surrender or finish of things problematic? Yeah, it's related to the extinction yeah. burst. There's a for a while there, this is especially in like 1950s psychology, the idea that like just get it out, you know, like like if you're angry, go beat up a punching bag or uh, yell know, at people from yeah. the safety of your car. Yeah, there used, used to be a thing in like the 80s, scream therapy. Yeah, know? I recall uh, the. Unfortunately, primal scream. Yeah, right. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, the any evidence. The evidence suggests that uh, what this does is reward you for the behavior, and uh, you maintain that level of anger and and anxiety and frustration because it's self-rewarding. Yeah, and so it's uh, there are ways to have cathartic experiences, but the ones where you reward yourself for being angry tend to keep you angry. That that makes a lot of sense. And uh, last question on you are not so smart. Do we ever really know things, or do we just have a feeling of knowing? <laughs> it's an unanswerable question, thankfully. Uh, from, from you me. don't know? No, no. Do I, you feel like I you feel know like the I know? That's uh. The, here's what's important to know about this: certainty is an emotion. This is something that gets uh, me in trouble. I think in like rationalist and uh, you know circles, but you won't get you in trouble here. Well, thank you, because like the the idea is like facts, not feelings, or you're my, you know the, let's not get emotional. Let's not take, make emotional appeals. Uh, there's no dividing emotion from cognition. Emotion is cognition. And certainty is the one of those things that lets you bridge the two because certainty is the emergent property of networks weighting something in one direction or another. And you feel like, you know, if you want to do percentage-wise, it's, it's you can feel it if I ask you percentage-wise. Like uh, if I ask you, did you have eggs last week on Tuesday? And you're like, I think I did. And like, well, like on a scale from like one to 10, like percentage-wise. On Saturday morning, I went to the diner, 100% I had eggs. So that feeling that you're getting, there's something in generating that 100% certainty feeling, right? So the feeling of knowing is something that's separate from knowing. But as far as subjectively, it's the exact same thing. We only get to see this objectively in some way, especially in those like open up the middle envelope. Let's see what you actually right. <laughs> said kind of thing. Yeah. So this is a pet peeve of mine because here in finance, there is this, for lack of a better phrase, meme that the markets hate uncertainty. And whenever people are talking about what's going to happen in the future, well, it's very uncertain to which I say, well, the future is always inherently uncertain. When things are going along fine and the market's going up, we feel okay with our uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So we could lie to ourselves about it very, very easily. Exactly. But when everything is terrible, the markets are down, the Fed's raising rates, inflation, oh, the market hates uncertainty. No, at the uncertainty level, you didn't know the future before, you don't know the future now. Exactly. But you can no longer lie to yourself that You're you have a on. sense of, of what's going on. This is, by the way, a very outlier view because everybody loves the uncertainty. Oh, well, I'm happy to sit here. I despise. I'm happy to sit here surrounded by all these people and uh, take the position of uh, you're very wrong. Uh, (laughs) They uh, They are less smart. There is no such thing as certainty. This is, you know, from a scientific or psychological, even philosophical domain, everything is probabilistic. Right. We can like hedge our bets, but the. The concept of certainty is way outside the domain of any of these topics, yeah. And and we'll we'll talk about Bertrand Russell later, but it it's a quote from your book that always makes me think. Well, let let's talk about it now because it's such an interesting observation. Quote: The observer, when he seems to himself be observing a stone, is really, if physics is to be believed, 
observing the effects of the stone upon himself. God, I love that quote so much. Right? Isn't that awesome? I was, that I, is right from this book, How Minds Change by David Oh, man. Marini. I hear it's a good book. The uh, <laughs> I got that from uh, interviewing the, the late Lee Ross, who uh, created the term naive realism. Uh, it's another phrase I love. And this, this is a, a way to kind of get into naive realism. Naive realism is the assumption that you're getting a sort of a a video camera view of the world through your eyeballs right, right. and that you're storing your memories in some sort of uh, database like a hard drive and uh, and that when I ask your opinion on say uh, immigration or gun control that whatever you tell me came from you went down to the bowels of your castle to your scrolls and pulled out the scrolls by candlelight and read them all and then one day came up from that and, and emerged from the staircase and raised your finger and said ha ah, this is what I think about gun control and it, it minus what, what's invisible in the process, or what becomes invisible when we're at, we're tasked with explaining ourselves, is that uh, all the rationalization and justification, and all the interpretation that you've done, and all the elaboration these all these psychological terms, and that you uh, this concept of naive realism is that you see reality for what it is, and other people are mistaken. It, when you get into moments of uh, conflict, and the the thing that Bertrand Russell said is so nice because he is uh, alluding to the fact that. All reality is virtual reality. The, the subjective experience is is very limited. What the German uh, psychologist called an umwelt. The thing related to naive realism that was so surprising in the book, and we keep alluding to evolution and various things. I did not realize that the optic nerve does not perceive the world in 3D. No. It's only two-dimensional. That's right. And, okay, so we have two eyes, so we're able to create an illusion of, of depth of, of a third dimension. But the human eye does not see the world in full 3D. Yeah, I, I just, uh, while, while I've been visiting New York, I, I spent time with uh, Pascal, who's in the book, and, mm-hmm. and uh, he's the one who, like, ran me through all this. Uh, That's it, amazing, isn't it? It's a... Uh, the retina, I mean, you know, obviously at microscopic levels, it's three-dimensional, but for the purposes of vision, it's a two-dimensional sheet. Right. And so we create uh, within consciousness the third dimension, but it's an illusion, just like every color is an illusion. It's a very realistic illusion, but it's an illusion right. nonetheless. Right, and, and that's why paintings can look nice, because you play with the rules of illusions that, uh, to depth, create light, depth, right? et cetera. And uh, even people who, who gain vision late in life, uh, the understanding depth and three-dimensionality is something that takes a lot of experience. You have to learn how to do it. And they oftentimes, they'll, in experiments with people who've just gained vision late in life, they'll like uh, put a telephone and run and, like far away from them and they'll, they'll try to reach out to it. It's like 30 feet away wow. because you have to learn depth. That's something that we learn over time. We just, you know, we did it as children, so we don't So recall. you don't remember, you don't really think about it. So let's talk about how minds change. I want to start by asking... How did a flat earther inspire this book? <laughs> they actually came in a little later in the process. I was uh, there was a documentary that came, on Netflix. You may have seen it, uh, Behind the Curve, mm-hmm. uh, and the producers of that were fans of my podcast, and they they grabbed a couple of my guests for the show and everything. And I thought it would be you know I would love to help promote something. I didn't know this, but someone told me I was in the credits, and I looked in the credits. It was like you know David, thanks to David McCraney. And I was like, oh wow. So I emailed them and said. Hey, you want to come on my podcast? We'll talk about your uh, documentary because if I had gotten a chance to make a Netflix show, it would have been very similar because because mm-hmm. that's it seems like it's about flat Earth, but it's actually about motivated reasoning and uh, identity and community and things like that. And, and community, community is the big a huge one. part of it, right? Yeah. Uh, group identity and um, ba- that after that episode, uh, they a group in Sweden knew they put on something like South by Southwest called the Gather Festival. They asked, "Hey, we got this crazy idea. What if?" 
you go to Sweden and we'll get uh, Mark Sargent, who is sort of the spokesperson for the Flat Earth uh, community. And we'll put you on stage. And I know you're writing a book about how minds change. You can try to try out some of those uh, techniques on them. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. So um, I did. I went and and I met Mark and uh, I found he's a very nice, very lovely man. And uh, I did try some at at the point where I where I met him. I was about halfway through and I wasn't great at the techniques, but I did an okay job. That that's towards the end of the book where you actually describe. Mm -hmm. um, He said it was one of the best conversations he ever had. That's right. You don't call him an idiot. You don't challenge his views. You're really asking, how did you come to these sorts of uh, perspectives right. to get him to focus on his own process? That's the whole idea. The The techniques I learned about in the book, uh, in writing this book, I met many different organizations, deep canvassers, street epistemology, people who work in motivational interviewing and therapeutic practices, uh, professional negotiation and conflict resolution, uh, people work in those spaces. And what really astounded me was when I would bring the stuff that I was witnessing to scientists or experts they there was this underlying literature that made sense but none of these groups had ever heard of this literature for the most part and they definitely hadn't heard of each other but they did a lot of a b testing thousands of conversations throwing what didn't work keeping what did and they would arrive at this is how you ought to do this and they would also very if, similar if they had the, and if, yeah, and if it was in steps the steps would be in the same order and I started thinking of it like, you know, if you wanted to build an airplane, the first airplane ever built, no matter where it was built or who did it, it's going to look kind of like an airplane. It's going to have wings right. and it's going to be lighter than... Yeah, because uh, you're dealing with the physics that you have to contend with when it comes to the kind of conversation dynamics that actually persuade people or move people or illuminate them. They have to work with the way brains make sense of the world and all of the evolutionary past that pressures all of that. And so these independent groups discovered all that, independent of each other and of the science that supports them. And Mark Sargent, like when I first met him, I shook his hand and said, look, I'm not going to like make fun of you or anything. He goes, oh, that's fine. Make fun of me all you want. And he, he took out his phone and showed me the commercial he had done for LifeLock, where he's <laughs> like, uh, if I can do it, anybody can do it. it was one, and he's totally okay with it. But that's not what I did. And the, when I sat down with him, one of the essence, I know we'll get to it, but it's like, you don't want to face off and I need to win, you need to lose. Right. I'm trying, I'm not even debating you. What I want to do is get shoulder to shoulder with you and say, isn't it interesting that we disagree? I wonder why. You want to partner up with me and try to investigate that mystery together? And in so doing, I open up a space to let him metacognate and run through, how did I arrive at this? Mm-hmm. And that's what I did with him on stage. And you know, we learned all sorts of things. Like he, he used to be a ringer for a video game company. Right. So, that, so that's where his conspiratorial stuff right. first came from. Oh, so co- of course he wasn't just a guy showing. The, these contests weren't fair. They, and it's always a unnamed they, right. had, had somebody skewing the outcome. Yeah, going through his whole history, it was really clear how he got motivated into this. But the thing that really kicked in was, you know, Flat Earth is a pretty big group of people. They have conventions, they have dating apps. And once he became a spokesperson for it, and he's traveling around the world, he's going to Sweden. Like now Well, he's, he's not these... traveling around the world. <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah, traveling that's right. across the that's flat right. surface that's of That's right. The world. He is traversing uh, the, the geography right. of Earth. Right, the what? Cartesian plane <laughs> of planet Earth. <laughs> that's right. And he, so that, that was a really is good... Is the sun flat also? That's always my question. Uh, if n- the Earth is flat, is the sun a sphere? Why would some celestial bodies be well, spheres? Th- there are schisms within the flat Earth community. There are many different models of flat Earth. Right. Uh, the one that Mark Sarge is uh, part of they see the earth as sort of it's almost like a snow globe yeah it's yeah. flat but there's a dome there's a there's a makes sm- perfect sense to me and, uh, perfectly rational the sun and the moon are, are are celestial objects that are orbs and when you ask my big question was like okay well then this seems manufactured who made it gods or aliens and he goes and I remember him leaning in and saying does it matter <laughs> isn't it the same thing 
Yeah, well, like, <laughs> you know, the Greeks figured out 5,000 years ago that the Earth was round by just looking at the shadow the sun cast at the same time in different cities of different latitudes. But 5,000 years of progress just hold aside. Hey, right? look, the you would I mean, you would believe the the number of ways that that has been explained away in you know flat Earth world. Uh, there's a plenty of explanations for why that's you know. Part of a big conspiracy. My, my favorite part of the Flat Earth community was Flat Earth meets Dunning-Kruger with the guy who built a rocket to go up in order to prove that the Earth was flat. We don't know what he saw because he crashed and died. <laughs> Do you recall this? was I like don't remember two or that, three summers ago. But I can tell you, I, can, I know exactly how the response would be like, see, see, someone they, sabotaged They took him that. out. Yeah. They took him out. So you mentioned several different groups the street epistemology and the deep canvassers were really fascinating in the book. So, such a right. Part so, of a quick background: a well-funded group in California were trying to convince people to support the Marriage Equality Act, uh, which ultimately ends up failing in California by three or four percent. And they had done thousands of home visits, knock on the door. Hey, we want to talk to you about about this act and why we think you should support it. And the failure of that was a real moment of clarity. And they said, we have to rejigger everything we're doing because this is totally ineffective. And the methodology they came up with, that standing shoulder to shoulder and let's figure out why you think, let's explore why we think so differently. You know, in politics and in single issues, if you can move somebody a tenth of a percent, right. it's huge. Their impact is 100 times that. It's 10 percent. 10, 10 to 12 percent. Uh, it's astonishing. Tell us a little bit about what this group does sure. that's so effective when they're supporting a specific issue. Yeah, the background you gave is exactly what happened. They wanted to understand how they lost, and they went door to door asking. They came up with this idea, this Dave Fleischer, who runs the uh, leadership lab. Uh, UCLA or uh, USC, the, I don't the, remember. The which. LGBT Center of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And they're extremely well-funded, millions and millions of dollars, and biggest LGBT organization uh, of its kind in the world. And the Leadership Lab was their political action wing. And as they were doing this canvassing thing and they lost in Prop 8, he wanted to know, well, how could that be? Because this seems to be an area where we would definitely wouldn't lose this. And so he said, what if we just wouldn't ask people? And so they did the exact same thing again, except this time they knock on doors and say, they went to areas they knew that they law that they had lost in. Help they, us understand. And if somebody had voted against it, they asked, "Why did you vote against it?" And they had these listening brigades. About fifty to seventy-five people would go out and knock door to door. And to their astonishment, people wanted to talk when they started asking. Like questions. this is a non-adversarial thing. It's just hear them out. Yeah. And when they did that, these conversations would go to 20, 30, 40 minutes, and they started thinking, "Well, we need to record these." And they started recording them. And somewhere along the way, about three or four times, people would talk themselves out of their position when you just stood there and listened. Don't and, you're not you're not nudging them, you're not challenging them, you're just letting them be heard. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to know what did we do there? What happened in that conversation that led to that? So they started reviewing that those specific conversations and taking bits and pieces and testing out was it this? Was it that? Was it this? Was it that? And they eventually, when I met them, they had done 17,000 of these conversations Amazing. recorded on video. Amazing. And they had A-B tested their way to a technique that was so powerful that while I went there several times and, and went door to door with them and everything. But every time I went, there would be scientists there. There'd be activists from around the world there because they were like, what have you done? What have you discovered? And it's very powerful. And over the course of writing the book, the research was done a couple different times on them. And they found the, the numbers you're talking about, 12, 10 to 12 percent success rate. 
And Crazy. the method's very simple. Like you only really know, know two of the steps, but you know, it's about 10 steps if you wanted to do it, the full thing. The most important aspect of this is non-judgmental listening and- Non-judgmental listening. And holding, you're gonna hold space to let the other person explore how they arrived at their current position. In other words, you're gonna help them be uh, very self-reflective mm-hmm. and figure out their thought process. Right, it's probably good to give you a foundation of what motivational, uh, what motivated reasoning is right here. So, you know, when somebody's falling in love with someone and you ask them like, why do you like them? Like, why are you, why are you gonna date this person? And they'll say something like, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they cut their food, the uh, the music they're introducing me to. When that same person's breaking up with that same person, you ask why are you breaking up with them? They'll say things like, well, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they cut their food, <laughs> the the dumb music they made me listen to. So reasons for will become reasons against when the motivation to search for reasons that will rationalize and justify your position change. As we've said all throughout our conversation, we're often very unaware of that. And if someone comes along and gives you an opportunity to self-reflect in a way where you will go through your reasoning process, you'll often start to feel moments of dissonance and question yourself. And as long as the other party isn't is allowing you to save face and is just non-judgmentally listening. That's a big component of this. In their technique, they'll open up and say, okay, we're talking about the same-sex marriage or transgender bathroom laws or something. They're very political organizations, so that's sort of the topics they cover. They'll ask a person, this is the, this is the biggest part of everything, and this I urge everyone to try this out on yourself and other people. You can just do it on a movie, like the last movie that you watched. What's the last movie you watched? The Adam Project. Okay, The Adam Project. Did you like it? Yeah, Ryan uh, Reynolds. Okay, so that's silliness. Boom. So easy to say, I liked it. Okay. Now I ask, on a scale from zero to 10, like if you were a movie reviewer, what would you give it? Six, seven. Okay. Why why does six feel like the right number? Um, It's not a great movie. It's not The Godfather, but it was entertaining and silly and fun. You like The Godfather? Uh, You know, that's a 10. Yeah, yeah. What, What do you think is The Godfather has that this movie doesn't? It's much more sophisticated. It tells a much more interesting tale. It's the characters are much more fleshed out. They're more interesting. Um, the violence is is gripping, whereas the violence in this is sort of cartoony. Right. So we're going to step out of that conversation. We're going to come back to it. But now, what? This is what I'm doing. I'm listening to you. I, I'm not judging you, and I'm giving you a chance to actually explore the reasoning and the and and your values are starting to come up, and things that are unique to you, and things you like about the world are. A lot of times, this is the first time a person's ever even experienced that. And, really? And this is a wow. moment for you to start to understand yourself in a certain way. In a conversation about a political issue, you might start pulling in things about where this actually, you know, the first time you ever heard about this thing. And then mm-hmm. it will become, you see it's received wisdom or you're being influenced by others. And then all that comes into, it's very easy for you to extract that emotion and tell me what you felt. I liked it. I didn't like it. But when I ask you to rationalize and justify it for me and come up and go through your own personal reasoning process, not my reasoning process... This is a unique experience for a lot of people. And then the other thing I can do is say, you gave it a six. Uh, how come not say a four? Uh, you know, under five, I would think is something I didn't especially like. I, uh, you know, I smiled and laughed throughout it. It kept me entertained for 90 minutes. That's uh, And my nephews, that's all I'm looking for. <laughs> See, and so we're getting deeper, more and deep, mm-hmm. deeper into the things that you that you look for in entertainment. But if we were talking about a political issue, uh, this is something that comes out of motivational interviewing, and they weren't even aware of this, the deep canvassing people. Uh, therapists who had uh, dealt with uh, people would come in for, say, alcoholism or drug addiction, and you know they already are at a state of ambivalence. They, they want to do it, and they, all, and they don't want to do it. That's why they've come for help. Mm-hmm. But a psychologist would often engage in something called the writing reflex to say, okay, well, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to do. Here's what and you're doing wrong. And they have to fight that. And you, you will feel something called reactance, which mm-hmm. is that unhammy you fools feeling that like, I'm telling you what to think, I'm shaming you. And when you push away from it, 
you'll start creating arguments to keep pursuing the thing. And they, this was such a, a debacle that they developed something called motivational interviewing where I would start, I would start trying to evoke from you counter arguments. And I can mm-hmm. do that very simply with the scale because when I ask you why not a four, the only thing you can really produce for me are reasons why you wouldn't go away from the six, which is also kind of going toward a seven. And in a political discussion, that's how they'll open it up. They'll say, we're talking about transgender bathroom laws. Here's the position that I'm talking about. It's coming up for a vote. I'm wondering where you're at on that, like a scale of one, a zero to 10. They'll tell them, and then they'll say, well, why that? And then this is a moment, we may stay there for 20 minutes, where we go through how you arrived at this number. And then in that, the deep canvassers do something different from the other groups. They ask the, the personal person anecdote. if they've had a personal experience with yeah. the issue. And on the LGBT same-sex marriage issue, what seemed to have come up time and again was, hey, is there anybody gay in your family? That's right. Do you want them to find love? Do you want them to find happiness? And suddenly when it becomes personal, the political issue gets inverted. That's right. You start really realizing how much of this is abstraction, how much of this is received wisdom, how much of this is political signaling or group identity signaling. And not every time, but many times, people will have a personal experience related to the issue, and that personal experience related to the issue will create massive amounts of cognitive dissonance on the position I just gave you. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. There's a phrase which I was going to mention later, but I I have to share it. Excruciating disequilibrium. Mm. Is that how you ultimately get to a point where either somebody changes their perspective or, or something breaks. This is how we change our minds on everything. Like we're always changing our minds at all times. Like the- Everything the, is provisional until- Yeah, and we don't, we're not always, we're totally not aware of it most of the time, but this comes from the work of, of a lot of psychologists, but I, I focus in on Piaget, because there's two mechanisms, assimilation and accommodation. Yep. Assimilation is, uh, when something's ambiguous or uncertain, you, in, you interpret it in a way that says basically, uh, everything I thought and felt and believed before now, I still think, feel and believe it, this just a modified a little bit. 
with you assimilate it into your current model of reality. Accommodation, on the other hand, is when there's so many anomalies build up, or this is so counter-attitudinal or counterfactual what you currently have in your model of reality, or they, or they would call it a schema, you must accommodate it. So you can think of it like a child sees a, a dog for the first time, and they're like, what is that? And you say it's a dog. In their mind, something categorical, something like uh, it's got four legs, it walks on four legs, it's not wearing any clothes, it's furry, has a tail, uh, it's non-human dog. And then if they see like a... a a orange dog or a, a you know a speckled dog, they can just say they can assimilate that. You know, right. different versions of the thing I already understand. When they see a horse, they might point at it and go, "Big dog," and they're really which isn't so wrong. There's an attempt to assimilate. Like I'm interpreting it, and look, it's got four legs. It, walk, it walks on four legs. It's non-human. It's not wearing clothes. This, Tail, fur. Blah, what's blah, going blah. on here? And he said, "No, no, no. That's not a dog. That's a horse." This requires an accommodation moment because you need to create a category that both horses and dogs can fit within, an overarching category. And we're doing that all the time. Like there are moments where we, uh, I think of things like that have happened uh, politically. I don't know how political you want to give, but let's like, sure. like think about the insurrection, right? The For a lot of people, I have positive attitudes toward a certain political persuasion and people within that positive attitude space did something I don't like. So I have these two feelings. I'm neg- I feel negatively and I feel positively about what has happened. You could accommodate and say well it looks like uh people who share my political views sometimes do bad things and i need to like have a more complex view of things or you could assimilate which is often how we get into conspiratorial thinking and say well i'm looking at this what if they didn't do that at all what if those were actors what if those were people who are pretending to be people that agree with me so how do you explain from that here's the fascinating thing there was widespread disapproval especially from Republican leadership, and then very quickly, within a 60 days, maybe even less, 30 days, that faded, and then it was just a bunch of tourists passing through uh, <laughs> through Congress. So was it just strictly that sort of tribal thing that we needed to, to everybody to manage? People just reverted back to their tribalism? Because there was some consensus yeah. for a brief period, and then it went... Straight back to partisan politics. It was that there's a there was a long stretch, and there always is, where you're you're being pulled in every direction. Uh, and you know, I don't want to make a blanket statement. Most people are pretty rational about what happened there, but there's a certain portion of the population that went very conspiratorial with it. And there was a deep crisis of how to make sense of the world, and where should I put my allegiances, and where are my values expressed. And what we would rather do is assimilate if we can get away with it, because that allows us to maintain our current model and move forward. And if we can find an elite who says, no, it's okay to think what you think. In fact, I agree with you. If I can find peers who will, who will support me in that, if I can find groups having conversations on the internet who let me do this, I'll assimilate and I'll stay within it. And as they say in psychology, my social network will reassert its influence. So one of the interesting things about the shift in uh, same-sex marriage opinion in the U.S. is how sudden it was. And when we compare it to things like abortion rights, Vietnam, race, voting, even marijuana, Mm -hmm. all those things seem to have taken much longer. Why is that? That was actually the first question I had. I thought that's what the book was going to be about. There's a dozen different answers to that question. It was sort of a confluence of psychological mechanisms. The most influential part of it is... uh, contact right there's an idea in psychology called pluralistic ignorance where uh, you know you ask a lot of people will have a certain feeling inside of them a, a attitude or a value and they'll feel like they're the only person within their community who has that feeling and unless you surface the norm in some way they're not they won't be aware that there are so many other people who feel the same way they feel surface the norm surface the norm as mm-hmm. they put it 
when I was asking political scientists about um, the shift in attitudes about same-sex marriage, they kept telling me this was the fastest recorded shift in public opinion since we've been recording this since the 20s. And since then, though, there was an attitude shift on uh, COVID-19, which I put in the book, uh, that was a little bit faster. But in this case... Like, in which direction? Towards vaccination? Toward or, vaccination, yeah. Which is kind of interesting because... There was an anti-vaxxer movement pre-COVID right. that was really kind of fringe. and. Mm-hmm. I went to one of their conventions for the book, but it's not right. in the book. It was part of the cut material. The Lancet article on, what is it, MRM uh, or RMR, I don't remember which, measles, rubella, oh, yeah, mumps um, vaccine, which was subsequently completely debunked. Oh, yeah. But what ended up happening is that group seemed to gain a little bit of momentum, the anti-vaxxers, and yet, even around the world, most countries are 65, 75, 85% vaccinated. Most wealthy developed countries that with access to the mm-hmm. vaccine. The U.S. is a laggard. Um, yeah. Less vaccinations, less boosts, and the most per capita deaths of any advanced economy, uh, which kind of raises the question, how much of an impact did the anti-vaxxers have, even though a lot of people eventually came around and got yeah. the vaccine? The reason I like to talk about flat earthers so much is because the same psychological mechanisms are at play in everything else that we like to talk about but politically. But most, most people assume they would never be a flat right. earther, but you don't necessarily get that uniformity when it comes to things like same-sex marriage right, right. or or, or, or any or poli- any political issue. that mm-hmm. Anything that becomes charged politically. And I use flat earthers so much because they're pretty much neutral and people are, can feel right. like they have some distance from it. And the mechanism, you can see those mechanisms at play and then I can say, and that's also in this and you can see how it works. The, with same-sex marriage, the, it is almost impossible to believe this as a person talking to a microphone right now in this modern moment. Like at, it wasn't very long ago. A decade that, ago. The people argued about this as vehemently as they argue about like immigration and gun control and everything else that's, that's a wedge issue today. And there were articles that would be that would come out that were like, "This is something we'll never get over. You shouldn't you shouldn't talk about this at Thanksgiving kind of things, right?" And then over the course of about twelve years, but very rapidly over the course of three or four years, we went from more than sixty percent of the country opposed to sixty percent of the country in favor, and around two thousand twelve ish. And the it seemed like how could this possibly have happened? Where did it come from? And I wanted to understand that too because I thought if I could take most of the of the country and put them in a time machine and send them back a decade, would they argue with themselves? And what happened in between these two moments? And if they were going to change their mind about this, what was preventing them from changing their mind the whole time? One of the answers to that is that a lot of things that have changed when it comes to like uh, social issues, people were separate from one another in, in social contexts, whereas with same-sex marriage and other LGBTQ issues, coming out was a very huge part of that. Any movement that urged people to uh, reveal their identities and to live openly allow people the opportunity to, under, to go, well, oh my God, I have a family member like this. I have a person who I care about who's being affected by this issue. I have people who, my plumber, my uh, my hairdresser, my um, brother-in-law, my brother, friend, all the, this whole world. And then that contact was part of that, right? I, I think that is the key to this being so stealthy, why nobody saw it. Because you go from I know a guy who's gay or I know a woman who's gay to I know lots of people who are gay. And over that ensuing decade and the decade before, at least from my perspective, it felt like lots of people, both private and public personas, Mm -hmm. were coming out as gay. And, you know, you had Ellen come out, which was a big deal, and you had Will and Grace on TV. It seemed like it was just 
you know, the momentum was building. Yeah, for it, was a long a, time. it was an exchange. Like the, and, and you talk about in the book where, where it's the cascade that's right. is waiting for the network to be ready. That's for exactly that where, that's, yeah, that's where I'm uh, headed up. Thanks for uh, kicking me over to it. The culture is being influenced by the social change. And then the social change in reflection influences the culture. And this back and forth is what mm-hmm. creates a, a staggered acceleration of the social change, right? But what's deep within that is understood in network science is cascades. And the best way I could like quickly explain what a cascade is, is uh, have you ever been to a party and everything seems to be going okay and then all of a sudden everybody leaves and you're like, what happened? Especially if you're the host. Or have you ever like waited to get into a restaurant or if you remember back in a university setting, you're waiting to get into a classroom and uh, there's just a big line of people and then the door opens up and you could have gone in at any time. It was empty, then right. no one was in there. These are examples of cascades, up cascades and down cascades. So in a school setting or a restaurant setting, you're waiting in line, the first person that shows up, they have an internal signal because they have no information. The door's closed. So maybe in the past, they tried to go to a classroom and they opened the door and everybody turned and looked at them and they felt real weird about it. Maybe they just have a certain kind of social anxiety. There are all sorts of nature nurture things that give them an internal signal that says, I should wait and see what's going on. So they take out their phone, they're playing with it. The second person that shows up, they don't just have an internal signal. They have one human being who seems to be waiting. Maybe they know something I don't. So whatever internal signal they have is magnified by that. They start to wait. Once you show up at a door and there are two people waiting and you don't, you're, you're pretty Pretty sure you're going to wait, too. Once there are three people waiting at a door, the, it's almost inevitable you're going to get a line of people waiting because they assume they're part of something and everybody knows something they don't. And you end up with a cascade. The only thing that will break the cascade is new information added to the system. The door opens up and like the professor is like, why are you waiting? Or, or somebody looks at their watch and is like, I figure we should have been in here by now. Or you could have a real rabble rouser. You could have a subversive element, somebody who's a punk. They have a low threshold for conformity. You know, They're, they're like, I don't care what people think of me. I'm going to open the door. And that person will lead everybody in. So what you end up here with are thresholds of conformity. Uh, some people need only a few people around them to do something before they do it. Some people need a lot. And any population is going to have a large mix of people who have different thresholds of conformity. If you think of it like a, an old chemistry molecule with like balls and sticks connected to it, mm-hmm. each person is a node and each node has a different threshold of conformity. And that threshold of conformity is influenced by how many people they know. So how many sticks are connected to balls around them. And you end up with clumps and clusters of people who have different thresholds as a cluster. Let's say you're at a party and uh, they want to go because you know they, they're tired of being there, they have work in the morning or whatever, but there are other people in the group who are like, I would like to go, but like I can't just be the first person that leaves. So the person who has a reason to leave or they just uh, don't care what other people think, they, they leave the party. That, that encourages the next group of people who needed one more person to back them up to leave. Now there are people who actually did, they wanted to stay at the party. But, uh, but hey, if everybody else is leaving. But their threshold of conformity just got met. They're like, I should probably go. And then now you have the people who are really, really going to stay all night. And they're like, I guess I'm the last person here. And either they, they spend the night on your couch or they leave. And you're like, oh, my God, what happened to my party? <laughs> this is Cascades. Uh, this is a It's a very fascinating part of human psychology because we're talking about massive groups of people. And you have a nation of people. You'll have massive clusters of people that um, – We'll have different thresholds, and we often will have one in that group, many of them called a percolating local cluster. Anyone listening who's in this world, I hope you're happy that I found your stuff because this stuff was totally unfamiliar to me. Uh, this stuff goes into like diffusion science and people studying how rocks sink and, and float. Percolating uh, local clusters. Right. So here's the, here's the best thing uh, uh, I've ever seen about to explain this. You're driving down – this is Duncan Watts. The fire. Yes. Duncan and- Watts. The great uh, sociologist. Who, Everything is obvious. He is. He gave this example to me, and I thank him forever for it. 
you can imagine a road that people are driving down in the middle of a forest. There's uh, someone who smokes a cigarette on the way to wherever they're going, and they throw a cigarette out pretty much every time at a certain spot in the forest. And they've been doing this for years, and nothing ever happens. And then one day, uh, they toss that cigarette out, and it causes a, a seven-county fire. Now, if you look at this from sort of a great man theory of history, or you're looking for people who are innovators, if you look at the whole old tipping point models and things like that, you're looking for the mavens and the connectors and everything. Well, it turns out the science doesn't really support that very well. It has nothing to do with any individual being more connected or more powerful or more savvy than anybody else. What it has to do with is the susceptibility of the system to anybody throwing out a cigarette. Meaning how dry or drought-stricken right. is that Something region? happened in that system. What, what's going on with dry leaves, with just the vulnerability of that that's forest? Right. The versus... vulnerab- that's exactly how they the, the phrasing they use. The vulnerability of that particular aspect of the network at that particular moment was quite vulnerable to any nudge, any impact, any strike. And the thing that really struck me about his example was it could have been a cigarette he tossed out. It could have been a lightning bolt. It could have been a nuclear bomb. It didn't matter how powerful it was. And it didn't matter how connected the person was. You don't think of it in the connection, uh, in the science of that connectivity and everything. It doesn't matter that the cluster was vulnerable at that point. And any complex system is going to be like the surface of the ocean. It, it, there are, it's constantly moving around. So if you think of that molecule model of human connectivity it's constantly morphing and changing as people their relationships change and they move from one group to another so the point that's uh, vulnerable is always moving so how do you affect great change like same-sex marriage or any other social issue that we've seen in the past you have to strike at the system relentlessly and if you're an individual you need to get as many people on your in your group to strike together and because eventually you're going to be the lit match in the dry forest. That's the idea. And you have to let luck be a big part of it because you're trying to find the percolating local cluster that will create the cascade that will cascade all along the uh, network because your different thresholds of conformity are moving in and out of the networks that you're affecting. If you look through any of the history of, of, of people who who've affected great social change, especially history of the United States, uh, they had figured out some system by which to get a lot of people together to strike at the system relentlessly, and, and they were indefatigable. And that was the most important aspect of the whole thing. And there are all sorts of other ways to nudge and move around, but that seems to be the essence of it. And that example from um, uh, COVID-19, that's what the fastest social change now ever recorded. They used this. Uh, what they did is they uh, it was uh, people who were um, very hesitant to get vaccinated because it was in the U.K., People in certain religious communities were very hesitant because of their past with the, uh, you know, the government of the UK, and they didn't want to necessarily allow the, these government entities they didn't understand very well to take a needle and put something they didn't understand very well into their bodies. So organizations got together with mosques and said, uh, "Here's the sites where we'll have the vaccinations," and they they got the the elites within that uh, religious community to to be the first to vaccinate. And so what you end up with is you have this wave effect of the least hesitant among the most hesitant. So these are people with the threshold, the thresholds mm-hmm. of conformity where they will go, well, all I need is one person I trust to do this. They get vaccinated. Well, that's a new wave of people who are vaccinated. So that next level of hesitancy says, well, I, this number of people that I trust have been vaccinated. I'll get vaccinated. So now you have that next level of hesitancy that they've been, they've been they satisfied. They told two friends and they told two friends. And you, you eventually wave your way through the cascade so that when you get to that middle hump that's very hard to get over, you have so many people vaccinated around you. It seems kind of weird that you wouldn't be. And and it's okay. You only some of the holdouts may take forever. The last people to buy the fax machine or whatever, but they're in a but, world. But where you, you get ninety percent of people that have already, and that's what we're got. aiming for. And so, there are ways to uh, to catalyze the cascade effects, but you have to you have to think of it in terms of uh, 
the diffusion model in this regard is not that old-fashioned, the uh, early adopter holdout model. It's right. it's waves of conformity via the thresholds of conformity where you want to build up by saying this group influences this group. Together they become a new unit and so on and so on and so on. Quite, quite intriguing. So let's talk a little bit about this evolutionary baggage that we have. It seems <laughs> that so much of our decision-making uh, – is affected by mechanisms and processes which worked great on the savanna, but in a modern world don't really seem to help us and sometimes hurt us. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I mean, that's been a big part of all of my work. The, all of these things are adaptive. Is that's the phrase you want to use? Like in you know, all things being equal, this is probably the best thing to do. Uh, but we get into certain situations where uh, that are very unique to modern life, and it turns out that it can get us in trouble. So that's the. The baggage you're talking about is one of those things where most of the time it serves us well, but in very specific situations, it, it goes the other way. Huh. Really intriguing. There, there's Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses, like yours, effectively manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. There is some specific evolutionary or adaptive uh, issues that, that come up. Why do humans argue? And why is that really a social dynamic that we all do and we all evolve to do? I, you know, this is one of my favorite things that that changed the way I see the world in researching the book, the um a lot of this also goes back to the interactionist model with uh, that Mercy and Sperber helped put together. Um, why would we argue? Well, the human beings have this nice, uh, complex and dense communication system that eventually became language. And we depend very much on the signals from other units in our social network to help us understand what's going on, to make plans, to settle on uh, 
goals, shared goals, to decide to just do stuff. And we so we do a lot of deliberating and, and, and arguing in that space. The problem is, uh, imagine it like um, there are three people, three proto-humans are on a hill, and they're all looking in different directions. And the none of us can see what the other two can see. So you would benefit from some sort of worldview that is the combination of all three perspectives. So if I do trust these people, I know them pretty well, and we're talking about going to a certain place in the, in the forest together or something, uh, one person's for it, one person's against it, I'll know that the person who's for it is young, this is their first time out, they don't know much about the world, they're eager to like show what they can do. That's, the, that's why they like that. You know, the person who's hesitant, they were in a bear attack two years ago, and they're, I don't know if they really are, they're, maybe they're a little over-scared. This is all, so I'm, I have a pretty good idea of what, how to modulate my trust about when it comes into the deliberation process. The more people involved in that process, the more complex it gets, the more I have to worry about people could be misleading me. They could be wrong, just by, by, by no fault of their own, or they could be purposely misleading me because they want to get an advantage over me. So um, they use the phrase, we have a built-in epistemic vigilance for mm-hmm. when people might be misleading us. The And that serves us well, too. The only problem is that can lead to something they call a trust bottleneck. And a trust bottleneck is when someone does actually in our group come up with a very innovative idea. Maybe it's a... a some sort of invention they've created, some sort of new way of doing something. They have an idea about going to a new territory where there's good things for us to go do there, but it's there's risk and reward in it, And this, but this person really is right. If we get into an argumentation process that's too epistemically vigilant, then we will end up not doing the thing that could benefit the group. And so we have this trust bottleneck that could prevent, that calls groups to stagnate. So we developed another evolutionary uh, mechanism to get past trust bottlenecks, and that is arguing itself. The argumentation process is how we get through the trust bottleneck created by epistemic vigilance. And go ahead, yeah. So I was going to ask, why are we so good at picking other people's arguments apart and so terrible at objectively evaluating? Man, I love this so much. There's a, uh, this, it reminds me of something in psychology called the Solomon Paradox. Uh, I think it's in business, too. With the, uh, uh, We're really good at giving out advice that it's very hard for us to actually employ in our own lives. Like you, when somebody has a problem, they tell you, and you're like, here's what you ought to do. But then when you have that exact same problem, you don't do that thing. Um, there's some really cool research recently where they have people put on VR headsets, and they uh, they walk into a room in virtual reality and see uh, Freud sitting there. And uh, Freud says, tell me about your problems. And they sit down and they explain the problem they're, they're having. And then they run it the second time, but the second time you are Freud. And uh, you see yourself walk in. It's all been recorded. They even have an avatar with your face. And you hear the audio of yourself telling your, telling you as Freud what your problems are. And they have around a 68% success rate of the person having a breakthrough. Oh, I see what I ought to do now that they couldn't do on their own. They needed to get into a, this dynamic that we're talking about. Mean, meaning looking at it from with through a different person's they to be, eyes. Yeah, they had to get in that evaluation phase. So um, we have two cognitive mechanisms to really simplify this. Uh, one for the production of arguments, the production of justifications and rationalizations. Mm-hmm reasons why we are doing something it's important that in psychology reason is not the big r reason of philosophy with propositional logic and all mm-hmm. that it's just coming up for re- with reasons for what you it's think rationalization totally reason. rationalization rationalization and justification and in some cases just explanation and th- why why do we do this well the the interactionist model is because we're always imagining the audience that's going to be receiving the information that's why you in your shower, you're thinking of how you're going to uh, really stick it to that person on Reddit that you've been arguing with all day, right? Why? Because that's the 
that's how that's how we produce reasons. But we also do it alone. Like if I'm imagining I want to buy something on Amazon or I want to take a trip somewhere, you'll start rationalizing and justifying it to yourself. And when you when you want a piece of cake, you will come up with a, with a justification for getting the cake, right? Like I didn't eat anything today, or I did or exercise yesterday, or whatever it is you need to do. You want to do it, but you need a justification for it. There's a humongous body of evidence that we don't even make the decisions that are best. We only make the decision that's easiest to justify. And um, Hugo, uh, Mercy and Spur have done all these great experiments where they have people, um, in one of them they had people, uh, they would solve these word problems, and then they would mix the answers up and uh, have people evaluate other people who've been looking at the word problem. But, of course, the trick is when one of the answers is their own, and they would find that when people were thinking that they were evaluating other people's uh, uh, arguments, they'd find the holes in their own like thinking and their own reasoning. But if they thought they were looking at their own arguments, they'd usually miss it. So, so, so it's an effective trick. Uh, maybe trick is the wrong word, but it's an effective technique to get people to objectively right. self-analyze is to make them believe they're criticizing someone else's argument. Right. So the, the, and what seems to be the function here, why this is so adaptive, is that under a lot of pressure, or it doesn't, even, it doesn't even need to be a group selection process. It's just simply how the math works out. If you have a lot of different people with a lot of different experiences, and they have a lot of different value sets, and they have a lot of different skill sets, and you're facing a problem, you're trying to come up with a solution to it, or you have a goal you want to reach, it you will be much more effective as a group if everybody presents their biased individual perspective, and they don't put a lot of cognitive effort into the production of it. Make it easy, cheap, and biased. Then you offload the cognitive labor to that evaluation True. process, that 12 angry men experience where everyone looks at each other's arguments and goes, okay, this, that, this, that, this, that. And so, over time, that's developed these two mechanisms. We have this, uh, that's why as individuals, and that's one of the biggest problems of the internet is that we, we do a lot of our deliberating these days in contexts that incentivize the production of arguments, but don't really give us much opportunity to go through that evaluation together. There's a phrase you, you had in the book that, that caught my eye, Debate leads those who are wrong to change their minds. And as a group, you want to get to the best decision, the best outcome. On the internet, it's not as much a, a real collaborative discussion, argument, debate as it is just people yelling past each other. Yeah, but it feels like it. You know, it, I it looks feel, like a real debate, but it's not. Yeah, I feel like I'm doing that. You know, I feel like I'm participating in some sort of uh, marketplace of ideas. It seems like I'm doing that. But the way the platforms are currently set up, for the most part, it's just people yelling, at, people like writing on a piece of paper what they think, feel, and believe, and dumping it onto a big pile. Right. And then other people running through the pile and going, Meh. like there's, it, <laughs> it's not like 12 Angry Men. We're, we're not actually sitting in a circle and, and, or, you know, it's not like a dinner party where we're, I'm sure you've had dinner parties or had guests over who have really wildly different political views than you, and you didn't like, get into Twitter mind with them, you talked it out in some way that is that that aspect is something we've yet to tweak the system to allow us in certain contexts. There was a, a very amusing cartoon. I don't remember who whose it was, but the line was, uh, what did you do when the United States was overthrown in the early 21st century? Oh, I tweeted my disapproval frequently. <laughs> and it just, you know, what what is 140 or now 280 characters? Yeah. It's just, it, it scrolls yeah. by instantly. It's not really yeah. that sort of engaged discussion. Yeah, I don't mean today. to be like, you know, I don't mean to, to poo-poo on, on social media. It's it's great for what it is. It's just, a, it, it is, but it also is what it is. Like, it's been a, it's a great tool for uh giving voice to people who haven't been part of the conversation in a long time. It's a great way to, to gauge what are people thinking and feeling. 
But if we want to do the deliberation thing, the argumentation right. thing that moves things around, it's not so great at that yet. And and, and the question is, will it, will it ever be? Um, so so you mentioned twelve angry men. There's a, there's a great line in your book. All culture is twelve angry men at scale. Yeah. Go into some detail about it. Mean, you know, it plays right off what we were just discussing, like the. The everything we've ever achieved as a species of note has came out of a lot of people disagreeing and then like sorting it out. And there are um, we've been great at creating some some institutions that uh, do this on purpose. Like science, when it's done well, is a group of people uh, debating and arguing with the other and trying to tear each other's ideas but apart. But there's good faith in science, but there's good and faith medicine, and elsewhere. That That's right. You may not get on on Reddit or Twitter. It's so crucial to create creating the rules of the game, and we all play by it. And mm-hmm. you, I've. The, you, if I meet you on the street or I meet you on the internet, like we may not be in a good faith environment. We're going to play by those rules. That that, but that's why it was so nice to create these systems of argumentation, like law and uh, medicine and academia. The and most of the people that we, uh, I'm very against the great man theory of things that where you imagine single inventors coming up with amazing insights. Like no one ever does anything in isolation like that. The and a lot of the even the people we've lauded throughout history, they had either someone that they bounced ideas uh, with or across and against, or they collaborated with, or they were absolutely assaulted over and over again by people who disagreed with them, and they had to refine their arguments in the presence of all of that. And that's why I talk about culture being twelve argument at scale. Like once any like society fi- figures out a way to institutionalize those things, that's when you get those massive leaps in, in both in the social domain, the political domain, and the scientific and technological domains. So so given all of these things we've been talking about, from tribalism to identity, how do we get people to actually change their mind? What are the three key things people need to have happen to them in order to get a major shift in their <clears throat> position? Well, you know, it would be difficult, I think, to pick just three things, but I can think of a couple of things that would fit in here. I think one thing I want people to understand is all persuasion is self-persuasion. Uh, most, mostly when it comes to changing people's minds, what you're trying to do is alert them to the fact that they could change their mind. So a little possible. bit of Socratic process is you're, Start, yeah, yeah. you're guiding them to something, and if they're right. not willing, then they're never right. going to change their mind. And it's, you know, I, we, we talk a lot about how facts don't seem to work so well. Right. Uh, that's only because the usually when you start arguing with somebody over an issue, you want to present them. You'll say, like, hey, read this book. Hey, watch this YouTube video. Hey, go to this website. And you're like, that should do it. And, but how is that? Has that ever happened to you? Like, never has anyone sent me a YouTube right. video and I've been like, oh, okay, I never knew it, though. I think I've totally this changed my mind about the issue. changed my mind, said nobody ever. And that's the idea of that is you – there's a reasoning – there's a chain of processing involved in reasoning where you are probably unaware that you went through all this and it landed on a particular conclusion because it, it made sense to you. It matched your values and your attitudes and your beliefs on the matter. And – you have to afford the other person the opportunity to go through that same process. You can't meet them at the level of the conclusion because what ends up happening is you just start tossing these these facts that support your position at each other instead of having a conversation in which we're looking at the issue together, right? So that's one thing is like you can't copy and paste your reasoning into another person. And when you're trying to, to argue just based off facts and links and stuff, that's really what you're suggesting they ought to do. So – all persuasion is self-persuasion. I have to open up a space for you to explore your own reasoning. And I have to open up a space for you to, to entertain different perspectives and to think about where your stuff comes from. It was what we did earlier in the conversation. Secondly, you have to recognize that we're social creatures. So people are influenced by the signaling and the expectations of the people around them. 
if you say anything to that person that could be interpreted as you ought to be ashamed for what you think, feel, and believe, conversation's over at that point. Mm-hmm. No one was willing to be ostracized. The great sociologist Brooke Harrington told me that if there was an Eagles MC square of social science, it would be social death. The fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. Literally a quote I have written down because I thought it was so, so uh – Poignant, and she ran me through a hundred examples where this is true, from war to excommunication yeah. to go down the list. It, it, it is social. Social death is actual death yeah. in most of history. And I don't care who you are or what kind of profession you're in, you're worried what other people around you in that profession think about you, and you're modulating your behavior to go with it, and you're modulating your beliefs, attitudes, and values. And when it comes down to it, if the situation requires it, you'll put your reputation on the lifeboat. And you will let your body sink to the bottom of the ocean if that's the situation you're put in. Hence, dueling and all those dueling. honor uh, things are we just do, amazing. We do. I talk all about it in the book. Dueling lasted a long time. It was really peculiar, but it was just this system out of control. And if I'm trying to d- discuss an issue with you and I put you in, in that state of mind, you there's no way. You're, what you're going to do is, is react. You're going to push back against me. Then I'm going to get feel that feeling. I'm going to push back against you. And then you push back harder. I push back harder. And we end up in that stupid phrase of a. Uh, well, let's agree to disagree. Well, like, we already agreed to disagree. That's how we sat down here, right? right. What you're really saying is stop talking to me. That's what that is. It's a, a, a nice. We're, we're agreeing to stop arguing and <laughs> debating. Right? We're agreeing to, ne- to never actually advance this issue and never talk to each other again. So never open up the conversation with uh, anything that could be interpreted as you ought to be ashamed, even if they should be ashamed of what they're feeling and mm-hmm. thinking. If you were hoping to persuade them, you have to not do that. And then the so be aware that they're a social primate. You're a social primate. Never try to copy and paste your reasoning of the other person. And the most important part is that you have to get out of debate frame. Don't, don't create a dynamic where I want to win and I want you to lose. I want to show that I'm right and you're wrong. This is, this is the most crucial thing. If you take nothing else away from it, take this. Think of it more like, hmm, I find you a reasonable, rational, interesting human being, and it's odd that I disagree with you on this. I wonder why I disagree with you. Our disagreement is a mystery. What if we teamed up to solve a mystery together of why we disagree? And now we're taking all these things that are adaptive and using them in a way that could actually get us further along and settle. And what might actually happen is we both realize we're both wrong. Well, we, we get to Venn diagram ourselves. So you go from face off to shoulder to shoulder. And this, if there are many different ways to go about it. But once you get in that dynamic, you're much more likely to persuade each other of something and move the attitude of the room. Hmm, quite fascinating. So let's jump to our speed round. Oh, God. I'm going to ask all these questions, 30 seconds or less. I'm going to do um, my best. These are these are what we ask all of our guests, starting with, what are you streaming or listening to? Tell us what, what Netflix, Amazon Prime okay. podcasts kept you entertained the past couple of years. Cool. Very quickly, my favorite podcast has always been, or still is, Decoder Ring. I recommend it to everybody. I love it. Willa Paskin's amazing. Best show I streamed recently is definitely Severance. Everybody should have seen Severance by now. Also, the rehearsal. You can see the kind of stuff that I like. Uh, watch. The- Someone just recommended the rehearsal and said it reminded them of of Severance and how out there. It yeah, was. watch that. And then, like, I am one of those people that plays video games, the highest form of art. You definitely play. Uh, Death Stranding, and I replayed Bioshock recently because I interviewed Douglas Rushkoff, and we were talking mm-hmm. about Bioshock, and uh, it still holds up. Who are some of your mentors who helped you develop your your view of uh, psychology and cognitive issues and you know persuasion? Gene Edwards, my first like the first psychology professor that took me inside aside and said, "Let's be friends and really talk about it." I owe a lot to her. 
You want people who I've met in real life? Whoever. James Burke is the most influential person in my life. I loved his show years ago. I think it was BBC, yeah. How the Universe Changed. How the Universe Changed and Connections. And I can, Connections, I, another great Only one. for people listening to this, uh, I worked with Joe Hansen and, and uh, James Burke all over all throughout COVID to develop a new Connection series. Really? And uh, I can't say anything else about it, but it will be coming out in the next year. Very exciting. I love his stuff. Uh, what are some of your favorite books and what are you reading right now? Let me just say as far as authors, I love uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan, um, Charlie LaDuff, uh, uh, Michael Perry, Larry Brown. All these are either people who are in Southern Gothic literature or are the Southern Gothic literature version of journalism. I can't get enough of that stuff. Our last two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career of either journalism or psychology or anything related to, okay. to your field? I'll give, you, I'll give you two solid pieces of advice that aren't just high-minded, like that sounds nice and they could put it on a postcard thing. This is what you ought to do. Number one, email the people that you admire or the people you'd like to interview. I have about a 70% success rate of really? e uh, when I was go starting out of people, they will at least email you back and say, I can't talk. But you'd be surprised how many people are willing to talk to you. Just do that. And then on the, on the back end, make content out of that and give it away for free until you build up an audience. We now live in an environment, we've been living in it for about 20 years now, where the people who are going to offer their hand to get you on stage, they care about whether or not you have an audience yet. You can build that audience without anybody's permission right now. And you can do that by making content on TikTok, YouTube, putting it out on Medium, wherever you put your stuff. So do those two things back to back. Email the people you want and then make content out of those emails and give it away for free until you have an audience. Develop your voice. Lo love that idea. Final question. What do you know about the world of psychology, changing minds, and persuasion today that you wish you knew 20 or so years ago when you were first getting started? Wow. No one's unreachable. No one's unpersuadable. There's no such thing. And I think of it more like if you try to reach the moon with a ladder, you'll fail. And if you assume from that that the moon is unreachable, then you really have learned nothing, right? And that's what I actually had thought for a long time. And it turns out the frustration I was feeling toward other people should have been directed at myself for not trying to understand, well, why is this not working the way I thought it should work? The assumption that they're stupid or they're misled or they're uh, nefarious in some way, that was the, the a real <laughs> misconception on my part. The misconception that people are just absolutely unreachable and unpersuadable. Uh, I have through the work of this book, changed my mind. Thank you, David, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with David McRaney, the award-winning science journalist and author of the book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out any of our 400 previous discussions over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you feed your podcast fix. You can sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Justin Milner was my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. 
from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.